Hello, Bayesian Conspiracy listeners. This is Kyle, the sound editor and sound designer of this podcast. We at the Bayesian Conspiracy are looking for a new musical track to begin and end our podcast, as the heavy metal track that you've been hearing thus far was just meant to be a placeholder that we never got around to updating. That is, until now. So we'd like to ask you, our listeners, some of whom surely have vastly superior musical composition skills than we do, if you'd like to compose something for us. Your name will be credited at the end of every show. Send us your submissions in MP3 format to BayesianConspiracyPodcast at gmail.com, and please keep the track no longer than a minute or so in length. Thank you so much for being fans of the show, and we are very much looking forward to hearing what you all come up with. And now, back to the show. Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Eniash Brodsky. And I'm Steven Zuber. And today we are going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, For a long time, I've been wanting to do general episodes on stuff that I've seen in the the Rationalist blogosphere, basically. And there's never like a good time to have an episode just on one particular subject. And then by the time I get to it, it's been like a year since it was posted and it's it's kind of stale and there's no point and some of them they just don't necessitate an entire episode to think to talk about so i'm hoping that from now on like at the end of every episode maybe we can have like a little section like hey here's cool shit i saw in the rationalist blogosphere recently oh man can we rip off the rationally speaking pick i sure what is that uh, I, speaking because i'm a better rationalist oh man <laughs> you guys heard it heard it her fears heard it here first enosh doesn't listen to rationally speaking God damn it you should listen to at least a few episodes i have heard um, a few episodes oh yeah so at the end they do their rationally speaking rationally speaking pick mm-hmm. where back when it was julia and Gal- julia galif and massimo piglucci and they were just doing it like together they would pick one for each of themselves but then when they had a guest on they let the guest do it and now it's just julia soloing it with guests okay and so the guest typically picks um and it's just like what's something that's tickled your rational fancy, whether it be a blog post or a game or a book or a movie oh, or whatever. Perfect. Yeah, we should yeah. totally do something like that. Cool. We'll Every to, episode. We'll have to rip off the name and do something different. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Cool. As long as we acknowledge that's where we got the inspiration from. And if it's what you wanted perfectly, I'm totally down doing that. So I nice. think I think for that you had, you texted me on what, Sunday with the episode idea. Yes. And today's Wednesday. Yes. And you had three things. Yes. Because I was like, there's a bunch. Let's just... Use one episode to knock a whole bunch of them out at once, and cool. then we can do it as a regular feature afterwards. So I think the goal for this is you're going to drive because I am now familiar with all three, cool. but not uh, fluent in all th- in any of the three. So okay. uh, you can just run it by me, and I'll have what? some concepts to relate it to. Do you remember what the three I told you were? Um, Elias Yudkowsky on no fire alarms for AI. Okay. Uh, uh, Zvi's post on Slack. Right, right and inadequate equilibria okay let's we should probably just do a whole episode on inadequate equilibria at some later point well, we'll see how, how much time we have okay we can at least paraphrase it fairly quickly okay because I, I also wanted to do a pick on the less wrong crypto aut- autopsy okay okay cool uh so uh the actually just earlier today the uh episode of sam harris's waking up where he interviewed eliezer yudkowski dropped and so he mentioned the no fire alarm for ai in that so I'm not going to spend as much time on it, I guess, but I still wanted to mention it because it was really interesting. And he didn't really, he just said that he talked about it in his Facebook post. He didn't really talk about it that much. Okay. Did he? Did he? I can't remember. He uh, talked he, about it. He, yeah, he, he hit the main concept 
behind okay. it. What's the main concept on No Fire Alarms for AI? The main concept is that, uh, like many of Eliezer's posts, it starts out with a cool anecdote about how p- humans in the real world are less than optimally rational. <laughs> no. Yes. Eliezer Jodkowski said that? He did. <laughs> I know. Shocking. He. Uh, this was an experiment, and I preface this with the same disclaimer that he prefaced it in Sam Harris's uh, interview that uh, there is a replication crisis in social experimentation nowadays. And I'm not sure if this is replicated, but regardless of whether it has or not, it um, applies to AI, even if it may not apply to real life. And Eliezer said that he is moderately confident that this one actually has been replicated and is uh, a pretty good encapsulation of how people act in the real world anyways uh the experiment was a bunch of people are put in a room and then smoke starts coming in from under the door and the researchers see how long it takes before someone actually is like hey shit guys there's a fire we should get out of here and what happens is that they wait way too long because most people are looking around and seeing if anyone else is panicking and if no one else is panicking then they're like well Obviously, this must not be that big a deal. Maybe someone is burning some toast. Maybe this is just an area of the city that naturally gets lots of smoke or something. Like, if there was an actual fire, something would happen to tell me this is dangerous and I should run. So, I think this these experiments, I've seen videos of this kind of thing being done that were like grainy from the 70s and 80s. I think people okay. have been testing this for a long time. This is partly bystander effect. Yes. Where bystander effect is where people... Well, there's a number of things, but basically it's like... Uh, pushing off responsibility in situations of possible social stress. So like uh, a good classic example is like if you see somebody like stagger into an alleyway and collapse on a somewhat crowded, you know, Friday night street downtown or something, um, you don't immediately run over and panic because you look around and no one else seems to be doing that. Um, And, you know, you start rationalizing, oh, maybe they're just drunk and they're, you know, going to rest it off for a second or, you know, whatever. Um, But you don't think like this person fell over and had a heart attack. And so even when they stage things like this, how somebody, you know, grasp their chest and collapse on a crowded st- sidewalk, people just walk past them. And I think it's not because people are like psychopaths. It's because people being the social animal that we are, we look to our peer, we look to the people around us and say, oh, if something was wrong, they'd be freaking out. They're not. So nothing, nothing's wrong. But the thing is that they're also doing that. And since you don't want to look non-calm when looking around assessing the situation neither do they so there's just this this blanket effect yeah yeah and it and it everyone is trying to look calm and look at everyone else and since everyone else is also there's this false sense that everybody is calm and there's nothing to worry about right and so you could do things where you get like two confederates and one test subject sitting in a waiting room and then smoke comes through the door or comes from the cock of the door and they just sit there while the and i think he said it was like 30 percent would act up pretty quickly but it's you know you know everyone would like to think I thought there was a fucking fire. I'd do something about it right away. Yeah. But you don't look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you get up and like, guys, is that a fire? You know, you don't want to look foolish in front of your 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 peers, the people around you, I guess. There's there's and, so much suboptimal shit that happens just because people don't want to look dumb. Yeah. So I'm kind of over that too. I, I'm trying to work on that. So like I said, speaking of not Excellent. giving a shit. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, the it's really easy for me not to worry about looking dumb because if, if I'd worry <laughs> about that, already I'd, looks be, so goofy, I'd, be, so. I'd be stressed out all the time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, people will wait until, you know, basically the room's hazy and it's hard to breathe before they start reacting, which, you know, if there's an actual fire might be too late. So <laughs> yeah, very likely could be too late. So how does it relate to AI? 
It relates to AI because that doesn't really happen when there's a fire alarm. Even though the humans already have all the evidence they need for a fire with the room filling up with smoke, they don't do anything. But when there's a fire alarm, that is, it now has made it public knowledge that there is a fire. Everybody knows there is a fire. You will not look stupid if you get up and leave now because there's a fucking fire alarm. <laughs> and so it, it breaks that, uh, that social awkwardness, I guess. Yeah. Uh, by making, by making, making it known that everybody knows that there is now a problem. Um, his assertion is that at least half the, uh, benefit of a fire alarm is just that specific thing. And he says that we have a problem in that there is no fire alarm for AI. And what he means by that is there are a lot of people who say, look guys, AI is not a big deal right now. We don't have to worry about it. Who knows how far off it is, maybe technically impossible, but even if it's not, we'll have some warning signs and we'll see it coming and we can do something to address it once it actually becomes an issue. Right now, people are like crying, oh, the sky is falling and, you know, funding their mega research projects off the backs of poor deluded geeks who are who are scared of the AI coming to get them when uh, when there's really nothing to worry about. And uh, Eliezer says, pointed out that there is no way to break this, this narrative that the closest thing he could imagine would be if a program came from zero knowledge of a system to teaching itself entirely about a system that humans have been working on for millennia without quite getting it and surpassing the humans within a day, uh, on domain knowledge in that area, that that would be a, that would be kind of a red flag. So we had a red flag like that somewhat recently, didn't we? It's called alpha zero. He was posting this in response to alpha zero. He was like, this is, this is a sign that AI could be coming close. And yet still people are like, you know what? I'm an AI researcher or an AI programmer. This shit is really hard. I don't see how people can get it done. So I'm not worried about it. And his assertion is what would make you worried? That's, if, if that sounds compelling to me. If that's not evidence, I don't know what is. Exactly. What will you accept as evidence? Do you have to wait until the nanobots are literally chewing on your leg, turning it into computronium for the for the <laughs> AI? <laughs> because at that point, it's a little late. And uh, that 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 was basically the gist of the thing that we don't have a fire alarm for AI. It'd be good if we did, but since we don't, we should at the very least openly acknowledge that there isn't one. So, is there anything actionable that we can do with that information? Like, you know. Uh, say if I don't know, you could run a company-wide awareness campaign in a in in a world where there were no fire alarms, and say, look, if there's smoke coming to the door, no one will think you're stupid if you get up and check and leave. Mm-hmm. Like we want to encourage that. Is there something, something like that that we can do with with uh, imminent AI? As I don't know if there's much we can do personally, aside from you know more publicly saying, hey, this is actually an issue that people should worry about. And I think things are getting a little better in that respect. There are very well-respected people in the tech field that are coming forward, and even not the tech field. Like Stephen Hawking isn't actually in the tech field, but he's a respected intellectual, and he says that he is worried about AI. So it's starting to swing that way. But the fact that there's no single large you know, alert or alarm or criteria that would get everyone to say, oh, okay, we should start working on this is also a problem. What can we do? I don't know. Uh, Keep, keep getting the word out. Keep trying to fund research. 
I mean, like we can take it seriously, but what does that mean? Like what that's not actionable for us. You're right. So that's sort of a drag. That's yeah. disheartening. Yeah. I guess at the very least, you it know, could be you when use it, your voice to, to point out, like if someone says, oh, I doubt it's really a problem and you're comfortable objecting, you could say, no, I mean, you, you might feel that way no matter what. Like just keep in mind that this is a real situation that there are many people who think that this is something worth worrying about. So yeah. And yeah. maybe ask people what, what would convince you that, uh, that this is a problem to worry about. Maybe and many give, people might not be aware of alpha zero. And then you could be like, Oh, you just described something that happened last year. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. That was pick number one. Round two. Round two fight. Uh, round two is Slack, a concept that has been introduced by Zvi together with Ben Hoffman, sort of. So first of all, who's Zvi and Ben Hoffman and where can we read this stuff? Oh, okay, cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, the previous one is from, you mentioned it's from a Facebook post by Eliezer, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll go ahead and link that. Uh, so Ben Hoffman is uh, Ben Compass Rose Hoffman, who uh, is, I don't know, a blogger everyone who i mentioned is basically just a blogger that i read in the rational sphere and i don't necessarily know what they do offhand so um zvi who blogs at the zvi the name of the blog is don't worry about the vase uh brought up the concept of slack zvi is actually i consider him kind of an up-and-coming in the blogosphere person he's writing a lot he's writing good interesting posts uh, the quality of them keeps getting better in my personal opinion and they are they they grab you they they're interesting to read which is really important with the blogs i mean that's what has made eliezer and scott alexander so influential right that you like reading their things so you keep coming back day after day but unlike scott alexander at least the one post that i read most of today the slack one mm-hmm. uh it was brief Yes. <laughs> um, so they aren't all brief, but that's fair. Yeah. But some of them are this one. It being brief was actually a good part of the theme of the post. So, cool. uh, well, cause you only have so much slack to go around and you want to spend, you know, lots of your precious time reading about it. Yeah. So let's talk about what slack is. Okay. So this was inspired actually by a post from Ben Hoffman talking about the concept of, um, the Sabbath. Uh, he relayed a anecdote about how he went on a solo camping trip. Originally, I tried to summarize the situation, but I ended up doing a poor job of it. So here's a direct reading of the relevant paragraphs with some omissions for time. Ben writes, Recently, I've been feeling too caught up in local social momentum. To spend some time alone, I asked a friend to teach me how to go camping. On my first solo two-night camping trip, I forgot to bring a backup battery to charge my laptop or phone. So instead, I mostly kept my phone turned off. Very quickly, I started being able to think about aspects of my situation that had been too overwhelming, too in motion, to get leverage on the day before, because I wasn't dealing with them. I wasn't keeping up with anything. I was just present where I was. I wished I'd done this years ago. And then I realized, if I had been keeping a Sabbath, it wouldn't have taken years to step back from social momentum. I'd have gotten a chance within seven days of noticing there was a problem, and seven days later, another chance, and so on. That, so, like, the requisite problem is that a lot of us might have might be able to unearth similar things that we could work on or fix if we weren't spending 10 hours, or not, I guess, maybe 10 hours a week on Facebook and Reddit and this and that. Not, not because those things are, like, bad, but because there's this pressure to not be out of the loop. Yes. Like, okay. uh, 
I mean, when I went out to dinner with you guys last night, I hadn't seen like the launch of Elon's uh, spaceship. I'd heard about it because mm-hmm. I opened up my Reddit feed when I was leaving work, and it was literally the top five things on my on my feed from different subreddits. Yeah, um, yeah, I hadn't seen it yet either. But but if you know, like, there's this discomfort of being out of the loop mm-hmm. and uh, having to halt a conversation while your friends catch you up is always uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, there's there's an incentive, like not necessarily through punishment, just through awkwardness that, you know, you want to be, to know, to have the same prior information as all your friends. Yeah. 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 Ben makes the argument that work is nowadays we think of work as things that we do for money. So if we aren't doing something for money, it's not work. But he says really the essence of work is the activity of producing or maintaining the artifacts that uh, allow you to keep living. So leisure is the opposite of that. It's when you're not you're not responding to this persistent stream of demands. When you're having leisure, you aren't having demands from your boss, no demands from TV commercials, no demands from news feeds. It is purely your own time to do nothing if you want. Just let your mind wander. This goes into the the concept of, as we were talking when we did our social media episode, in the modern day, everything wants your attention. Everything wants your time all the time. If you allow it, It'll take all your attention. Uh, having a time where you are forced to not be able to keep up with things is good. His real point with all this was, you don't have to do this every Sunday. But if something like an Orthodox Sabbath seems impossible for you, that you cannot take a day where you can't drive, where you can't look on the internet, where you can't cook any food then you are probably in a permanent state of emergency. And uh, Zvi picked that up and ran with it. He said that if you are living so far away from any support area that you can't take one day without a car, there's probably a problem. If you don't have the time to cook a few meals the day beforehand and put them in the fridge, there is very likely a problem. That you don't have any room for absorbing shocks that may hit your system. Do you remember which book he recommended? I don't. It was in the link, which wasn't that long to read, which we'll link to in the show notes, but we can also find the book. Okay, but there's, uh, I know there was a similar book about shock capitalism, which is the same thing. Like a lot of people are just making a day-to-day with $100 in the bank or, you know, maybe less. Uh, they're, they're living off their credit cards. And if something happens, if a tire blows out, they're fucked. They can't get to their job. They, they might get fired. They, if you get in a car accident and can't come to work for three days, then you are, could lose your apartment or your house because now you can't make a payment. That uh, it's very important to have a cushion, a, a little margin of error if for economic things. So he defines, I didn't mean to interrupt, you were in the flow, go ahead. Oh, well, and that he was saying that this, uh, this goes to more than just money. That uh, in, work er- in work areas, like I just got off a brutal month of work because it was year-end and year-end is always awful for accountants. But in a typical work situation, you don't want your people working at 100% all the time. Because first of all, people do need to rest. But second of all, this means there's no room for if something goes wrong to go back and correct it. There's no room for someone to get sick and everything goes to hell. There needs to be some inherent slack in the system. And there's actually a article out there, interestingly, uh, that argues that in programming uh, areas, it's 60% is how much you want to opti- uh, how much you want to utilize your system at any one time with 40% uh, of, of time devoted to, to slack because any more than that and you start losing productivity because you can't, uh, 
take the time to fix small things that come up or, or whatever the situation may be. So the, the, the argument in general is that Slack is incredibly important to have because it makes it possible to not be in a permanent state of emergency and to, to take advantage of opportunities that show up. And I'm going to read a little quote directly from it, but go ahead and say what you were going to say. I was going to say two things. One, I can attest to that in software for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't think my boss's boss listens to this, but uh, for plausible deniability, um, I know somebody whose direct manager says, I plan for your guys' work for five-hour days. Mm-hmm. And I know you guys are here roughly between six to eight hours a day. But we're not going to plan for more than five hours worth of work a day at most, and you know that's that's because like a lot of that time, you know, so I read a lot of work. A lot of it is for is for stuff that relates to my job, but like I don't have to do my like hardening my knowledge at home on my free time, um, and so part of it's for that. But I mean, like, there's also like I was part of a Nerf gun battle this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> awesome. And uh, you know, there's ping pong. There's uh, in fact there was just a company wide tournament where the one of the developers won. He's the apparently the best ping ponger in the company. Um, and uh, you know, like just random little shit like that. Um, and that keeps morale up, right? So mm-hmm. uh, there are some parts that you know people are like, and I'm coming in on something like this this week. It's weird, but because it's like the first time I've had actual obligations since I started there, uh, where I've got to deliver something that I don't know how to by like the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it makes the times where like you're crunching. If you're always crunching, like if your job was always like it was last month, you would last oh. three months, right? Yeah. So the fact that it, it there needs to be some downtime, and yes, like your employer doesn't want to pay you to dick around, but they have to if they want you to not dick around for six hours a day, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just just supporting that for my thing, and I wanted to define Slack the way that's V did on the post. Cool. Um, so Slack was the absence of binding constraints on behavior. Yes. Which is super vague, but it fits into exactly what you de- what you described, yeah. right? So, you know, the idea that you have some cushion. If you're 10 minutes late, it's not the end of the world. If uh, if you you have unstructured time, um, which, you know, if you're working two jobs and, you know, you take a two-hour commute between jobs or something and you have six hours to sleep at night, you don't. Um, so Slack is just this commodity that, in the way that that's be uh, portrays it, is this commodity that you have that is this encapsulation of everything that gives you freedom mm-hmm. um, from behavioral constraints, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it, and, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, can I read the thing? Because it ties in perfectly right to what you're saying right now. Go. Okay. This is like the little part of his post that I just really loved because it almost felt like a poem to me where he is, uh, again, continuing to define Slack. He says, Slack means margin for error. You can relax. Slack allows pursuing opportunities. You can explore. You can trade, which, just as a real aside, you can't take time to explore if you're in permanent crisis mode, right? Um, Slack prevents desperation. You can avoid bad trades and wait for better spots. You can be efficient. Slack permits planning for the long term. You can invest. Slack enables doing things for your own amusement. You can play games. You can have fun. Slack enables doing the right thing. Stand by your friends. Reward the worthy. Punish the wicked. You can have a code. Slack presents things as they are without concern for how things look or what others think. You can be honest. Without Slack, you cannot relax. Your life is not your own. Those who do not value Slack will soon lose it. Slack matters. Fight to keep yours. I loved it, and I I read it 
the reason I didn't finish this, even though I had like, you know, 15, 20 minutes at work, because I read it slow and I thought of examples for each one of those things, right? Um, you know, you can do the right thing. Uh, you can have a code which like, if you're financially desperate and you open your car door in the parking lot and it dings somebody else's door, mm -hmm. you can't afford to do the right thing and go tell them, right. right? Because your deductible will mean that you can't pay your rent. Mm -hmm. And so like that, that, that constraint makes you have to, have to violate your, your preferred moral norms, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of dystopian fiction is that kind of thing where people just don't have the ability to do the right thing because it would literally kill them. And that's what makes a dystopia, you know? Yeah, that's a good way. That's a good definition of dystopia. <laughs> um, like you can be honest. That is a uh, a slacky freedom that we have. Like, you know, I profess my weird beliefs to my coworkers. But like if I worked in a less free environment, then I, I would be less free to share those things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just I liked that a lot. Um, and then you had the line, defend slack. It's uh, where was that on here? Um, what was it again? Those who do not value slack soon lose it. Yes, because other people are happy to to take advantage of it. Yeah, and that's why I like uh, even I think with rare exception or maybe with some exception, but even at my job, you know, where you're not expected to work all the time, you're expected to kind of look like you're working most uh -huh. of the time. You know, you can get up and play ping pong whenever you want, but you can't spend the whole day over there. Um, and when you're at your desk, if you're not working, you know, if you if you can put code up on one of your monitors. And then you're reading a blog post on your laptop. Then at least it looks like you're maybe are reading something related to your job. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to keep going. I, I okay. Yeah. So, um, I I like that, and it seems to have caught on because it is now, it's a concept that everyone kind of intuitively understands. But now there's a word for it. There's a handle that we can use to to talk about this concept, and that's super useful. Also, the tool that I use to dick around a lot at work is called Slack, which he mentions in the article. It's a like an instant message tool. Okay. Um, people who use it will hate that because it's like you can make channels and it works cross company and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But like I also use it for like formal communications between like people that I'm working with and collaborating on. But I also have like fun channels with my team. Uh, so you know, if we want to just ship post or plan lunch or something, we talk there. Nice. Um, so, so Zvi was on Slack, and what was uh, the other guy's name? What was the name of the article that he posted? In case someone doesn't want ben to dig Hoffman. In it. Ben Hoffman. And was it a um, blog post or was it a book or what was he? Uh, it was a blog post. I, I still have the link. Okay, cool. Sounds good. I'll put it up. All right. All right. So that was two. That was two. Uh, Number three. Are you familiar with this Bitcoin thing that's been going around? Let me check my wallet real quick. <laughs> Oh, uh, it oh. was it was a scary week for my wallet. Was it? Oh, I remember man. when you asked you you like messaged me when it was up around fourteen thousand or something, and saying like, "What should I do?" And I said, "Yeah, sell half of it." What, what what did you end up doing? I hold on to it. Okay. Um. So I actually I only bought when I initially bought, I bought my I think the weekly spending limit that Coinbase gives me. And pros of this will hate that I use Coinbase, but it's easy, so I yeah. used it. Um. And I bought. 25% Bitcoin, 25% Ethereum, and uh, what, 50% Litecoin? Mm -hmm. Is that what that averages out to? Mm -hmm. um, I've since sold the Bitcoin and put it all back into Ethereum. Okay. Um, but yeah, so now Bitcoin's down to eight grand, uh, which is slightly above what it was when I bought it. But which it's, means it's now up to eight grand, because wasn't it down to six like a week ago? Yeah. Okay. But so it's still up from when I bought it, but you know, that 14 bubble did pop. But I, so I, you know, obviously if I'd sold then, I would have made some money. And, I, I, I bought right before it exploded. Like the first week of December is when I bought. Mm -hmm. um, so I've never gone negative, okay. but uh, I came within 
15% of, of like, so my total gains went down to 15%, like, earlier this week. Oh, no. Um, a 15% gain in two months. Well, you know consider, how many investors would murder for that? Considering that when, like, after two weeks, it, it was... It had gone up 100%. It had gone up 300%. A three, oh, Jesus. Or, wait, I guess 250-ish. Okay. Um, so, like, it was huge. Um, but my plan, basically, now is just to, like... Uh, hold on to it till I need it. Mm-hmm. Since I, I don't really see it going below my initial investment. When it looked like it was going to earlier this week, I was going to finally have to face the hard question of how low, how much money do I, am I willing to actually lose? Mm-hmm. Um, but so far, all I've lost is forsaken gains. So like right now, and you know, the best thing about investing and gambling is like you don't lose anything until you cash out, right? So um, <laughs> if, if, if my if my Coinbase wallet is $10 next week, well, as long as I don't sell, there's always that hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it will go back up. Um, but, uh, yeah, right now I'm holding on to it as sort of like a, I'll probably need it down the road. Like I'm trying to buy a townhome at some point. Yeah. Um, so I mean, fuck it. If it goes nuts again, I could put, that could be a substantial hit into my down payment, which would be really cool. So I, uh, I initially bought, I didn't buy very much. I think it was like $500 worth when it was at 4,000. And then I sold a large majority of that when it hit 9,000. Because I was like, it's probably not going to get any higher. And I was like, damn it, I wish I held on to it until it hit 16. But like in your defense, you couldn't have known, right? Yeah. And you doubled your money. I did. I so more than doubled it. That's so. pretty cool. Yeah, that was nice. And now I'm like thinking, at what point should I buy back into this shit? Frankly, if you'd bought back in on Monday. I know. It would have already been up 20%, 25. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so like just on this out there, if you're thinking about it, might not, now might be the time. I'm done. I've already decided I'm not putting any more money into it. Mm-hmm. You threw out the number how much you put in. I put in twenty five hundred dollars. Oh wow. Which I'm kind of like new to having like expendable income. Okay. And this was enough to where like I wasn't gonna miss rent if it all vanished overnight, yeah. even though I was confident it wasn't. Um, but it would have sucked. Yeah. Well, like yeah. this was this was a substantial amount and still is of like my total amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um but the lowest it's been since I got it was thirty one hundred after I was had access to it. So like um but at most it was pushing like sixty six for my entire wallet. So um, maybe a little more, 69 or something at some point. Yeah. So like there was a period where like I made like four grand and just doing nothing. So that was kind of cool. And yeah. so, uh, this Bitcoin hypey stuff, I'm somewhat in the loop on, okay. but, uh, not enough to, I'm not technologically informed on it that much. Oh, but yeah. even the, even the friends I know who are, I went to talk to one of this earlier this week on Monday when it was, exp- when it was dying mm-hmm. and I'm like, what should I do? You know, should I, you know, what did, what did you do? And he's like, oh, I sold it all last weekend when I was, you know, getting my new apartment. I'm like, oh, then you're good. And he's like, yeah, I'm fucking lucky. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I was like, well, what would you do? You know, he's like, I don't know. And he's like the most knowledgeable person I know about any of this stuff. So yeah. my impression is that nobody really knows anything about any of this and that like it's literally gambling. I was I was waiting for it to hit 5,000. I was like, once it hits 5,000, I'm going to buy back in. But it never did. And now it's up to like eight again. <sighs> you could get not Bitcoin and get something else. It's true. I have like 12 Litecoin. I think I have 12 and a half Litecoin and they're 120-ish bucks right now. So, cool. um, And when I bought them, they're at 100. So I'm still up on Litecoin. But for, for like a week, they were over 300. Like it was insane. So... Um, this whole thing's weird and I feel dumb talking about it because it's like it's like you're at the roulette table it's like I've hit green like four times in a row isn't this awesome <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna keep going back in mm-hmm. so uh, what's the what's the rationalist blogosphere have to say on cryptocurrency uh, well this is actually Scott Alexander's uh, grading the rationalist community in a way sort of not really you know, actually he did literally assign it a letter grade but <laughs> <laughs> what was the letter grade 
See, there's that spoiler. See, see, yeah, passing. Yeah, yeah. He, he, but he, as rationalists, we should be getting A's. In I'm assuming he's grading us on our rationality, right? So yeah, he actually has a very good, a very interesting post on this. It's called a less wrong crypto autopsy, and he posted this over at lesserwrong.com instead of on his normal blog. Uh, I know I'm pretty sure we've mentioned lesser wrong before, but uh, less wrong is where this whole thing more or less started with Eliezer posting and then everyone else jumping in and turning into a big conversation and community. And it kind of died out and people went their separate ways on the internet to their own personal blogs, which is why we now have a blogosphere instead of lesserwrong.com. But there is some effort to try to revitalize this. And uh, so lesserwrong.com is around now and they're actually making a pretty good go of it. There's there's some interesting content there fairly frequently and some some decent posters. I mean, there's V posts on there. Uh, Scott Alexander apparently is now going to be posting on there now and then. Matt Freeman said he posted a lot over there. We've uh-huh. had him on the show. Yeah. Shameless plug for his his uh, Worm podcast called We've Got Ward. That's what it's called now. It's mm-hmm. for the sequel to Worm. Uh, I just started giving it an honest listen and I love it. So everyone should listen to that show. If you're reading Worm and if you're not, you should read Worm and listen to this accompanying podcast and then read Ward and you can do it in real time with uh, Scott and uh, Matt while they while they do the podcast. And I know at least one of our listeners wrote to say, hey, thanks for letting me know about that podcast because that was really cool. Cool. Yeah. What was I going to say about, oh, Lesser Wrong. Um, they also have, it's like Lesser Wrong's fun, but it was clearly not, well, I don't know. I guess I can't say clearly anything, but it, at first glance, it is not optimized for like newcomers and oh. uh, like there's a small button that says sequences, but it doesn't, you know, other than the fact that no one shuts up about it on there, especially back in the day, like read the sequences, you don't really know where to go. Mm-hmm. Lesser wrong has like a nice cool little thing where it's got a suggested reading thing mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Slate Star Codex is on there. Uh, the sequences are on there. So um, anyway, it has recent posts on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he posted on uh, Lesser Wrong. A, a crypto at autopsy where he starts it out by giving a history of how closely intertwined the original cryptocurrencies and less wrong were uh, says way die, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Why day? Maybe anyway, I'll go with why day. Why day? One of the first people Satoshi Nakamoto contacted. Are we before I go on? We know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Let's pretend we don't. Okay. Uh, He is... I don't. (laughs) They is a fictional person who is the anonymous creator of Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I thought I knew something about Bitcoin. I guess I don't. No one actually knows who this person is, uh, but they made Bitcoin. God, I hope it's like Elon Musk. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So, Weidai, one of the first people that Satoshi Nakamoto contacted about Bitcoin was a frequent less wrong contributor. And yeah, some of his posts were really good. Some of my favorites. So was Hal Finley, the first person besides Satoshi to make a Bitcoin transaction. The first mention of Bitcoin on Less Wrong, a post called Making Money with Bitcoin, was in early 2011 when it was worth 91 cents. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Gwern, also a big uh, poster on Less Wrong and famous for his incredibly involved and complex uh, posts where he explores things with his own cool experimental method uh Gwern predicted that it could be someday be worth upwards of ten thousand dollars a bitcoin according to the recent slate star codex survey nine percent of ssc readers made a thousand dollars or more from bitcoin as of december 2017 among people who referred to ssc from less wrong which he uses as a stand-in for longtime less wrong regulars 15 percent made over a thousand dollars on crypto which is nearly twice as many 
a full 3% of less wrongers made over $100,000. That's pretty good. On the other hand, 97% of us, including me, didn't make over $100,000. All we would have needed to do was invest $10 back when people on less wrong started recommending it. But we didn't. How bad should we feel and what should we learn? So part of this might be me protecting my own ego. Well, actually, it doesn't take that much protection. I didn't know about Bitcoin in 2011. Right. So I, I'm shielded there. But like, I imagine some of the reply would be, this is the one I didn't read. So I don't know anything about what Scott's position on this or any... I guess I know what his position is now, but I didn't know this going in or what any of the feedback might be. But I would say part of it is, I guess, a couple of things. One... You had no idea of knowing that this would do anything. Granted, ten bucks isn't a huge investment, but you don't know. Neither is ten dollar lottery tickets, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and you more might to the point. Ten dollar lottery tickets are really easy to pick up, whereas getting into Bitcoin back then was a process. Right. You and would need someone who knows how to do this, and like an afternoon. So, that combined with the fact that, like, when I was coming onto the scene, and all the ones that are you know sub a dollar, there's like a hundred that come up pretty pretty easily when you're searching. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do I know which one's gonna be the next Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. So maybe it was easier when there's only one. Maybe it was a less excusable mistake. But and I haven't invested in any of the tiny ones. One of the guys that I know at work does, and I think he's made some money, but not like not a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Um, I don't think he's made a thousand. I don't know, but you know, he's not he's not rolling in it yet. He still works there. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but yeah, how do how you know? All right, let me articulate this. I think it is a reasonable rebuttal, which I'm positive Scott gets to because he's a smart guy, um, that like we couldn't have known this would do anything. So what's the reply to that? And when you said, uh, and back when Bitcoin was the only one, Bitcoin was never the only one. Uh, One of the people who uh, replied to Scott's um, post on this was uh, the first person who knew... uh, one of the first people who knew about Bitcoins because he was a moderator on the forum where it was introduced. Uh, so he even saw it before the normal forum users. And he said, like, at that time, there was about a dozen new cryptocurrencies that people were pushing and Bitcoin was just one more of those, you know? And so there were there were a number of people who said that sort of thing. But Scott's reply was that there was a lot of people who we knew to be smart and know on these technical matters and we trust who are in the rational sphere, who are telling us there is a 1% chance that this thing could go to the moon. Uh, maybe 0.1 even, but it, it's it's a decent chance that you can get 5,000 times returns on this thing. And yet most of us did not jump on it. And that as a rationalist is something you should do. And again, people pointed out, you know, when something is a 1% chance, you go in for the first three, four, five, maybe dozen. You keep getting screwed by these things that take $10 plus an afternoon of your life. And eventually you're going to burn out and not do them anymore. And and again, Scott's reply was like, as a rationalist, you should expect only about one out of 100 to actually pay out if you assign it a 1% chance and not get discouraged after a dozen because you realize that the chances are most of them will fail. But then we're talking about a $1,000 investment on average. No, we're talking about... If we're spending 10 bucks per thing. Oh, over 100? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then I think that becomes a harder uh, case, right? If I'm going to give, if if give 10 bucks to everything that has a 1% chance of making me money, I mean, so like yeah, your, your odds give... of making your money back on a scratch lotto ticket are like one in five or maybe one in four. 
So like a lot of them pay back the dollar you got to right. get you to buy in again. And like, but the expected returns on a, on a scratch ticket are always less than $1. And in fact, in like some cases, it's significantly less, right? Well, like but slot machines advertise that they're really good because they pay back 98% of every dollar that you put in on average. On which, average, yeah. right, yeah. Which is <laughs> fucking, but that, that is, I, I, I want to shudder when I see that advertised as a good thing, you know? They're like, we give you back 98% of your money. Like, so there's two things with that. One, I've never seen the advertisement. Okay. But I guess I don't, it, maybe it's on it was on the billboard as I was driving. Okay, that's hilarious. Yeah. So the other thing about that is, so you're telling me I'll only on average lose 2% of my money? <laughs> that's like, if you're reading this, you know, even the literal way, which is, you know, the, uh, obviously, like I said, it's on, on average. So you get a jackpot winner, so they give back 98%. And they're mm -hmm. saying, we only keep 2% for the house or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that's telling me as the player, it's like, oh, okay. So on average, I if you know, I plan to only lose 2% rather than lose nothing if I don't play. Right. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but this this is a thing where the the payoffs were like when when Gwern said has a chance of going to over ten thousand dollars. That's a case where you invest ten dollars and you get back a hundred thousand. What was Gwern's case for that? I don't remember. It was yours. I, I know, but like I was wondering if it was referenced in this article because if all he was saying was like I think it'll get big. No, like Gwern is Gwern. He he had spelled out reasons he had to have because the man is meticulous. But how, I guess, and I, I mean, I'll, have to, I'll have to find this case. I will look it up. But uh, I'm curious how he could have anticipated. Also, was Gwern one of the 3% that made $100,000? I don't know, actually. I certainly, he'd better be after <laughs> after proselytizing for it. And there there are a number of people who, well, I'll get to that in a second. But uh, there was, there's the fact that if you expected to have a 1% payout, sure, that's $1,000 to go into all 100. But a $10 uh, if any one of those hits uh, and you've put in $10, you expect to get back $100,000. So that's still 100 times your money back. You put in $1,000, you get back $100,000. Totally worth it. Yeah, that sounds pretty worth it. Yeah. I'm not an economist, but... <laughs> right. Know. So, the, the, I mean, that would be like the expected payout of for every dollar you spend, we only give you $100 back. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a gamble I would take. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting post and... He he said that, but as as is pointed out, three percent of people got really super rich by following this, and a lot of people said this looks good in principle, but then just didn't follow through with it. And he said, I think our ep ep epist epistemological. Thank you. Our epistemological. <laughs> my word, mouth isn't braining today. <laughs> <You're> good. <laughs> Uh, our epistemological rationality is pretty good, but our instrumental rationality still needs serious game because we we may know things, but we don't act on them. And there were a number of people who pointed out things like, uh, for example, an afternoon is a significant investment of one's life. If you have to spend 100 afternoons, that's a lot of fucking effort. Uh, there were a number of people who said, I did buy in very early, and then I got out when it hit 400 because... I didn't think it would ever get much more, more above that. Uh, there were a few people who said, I got in early and then I lost everything when the Mt. Gox uh, hack happened. So it's, yeah, this wasn't actually as risk-free as some people necessarily make out. Yeah, that plus like, it'd be one thing if we were all told, I guess well, I still need to read the original case that Gwern made because if we were all told with like really high reliability, 
that this would work. But if it's like, you know, one person's well thought out speculation, that doesn't mean that like we knew something and didn't act on it. Mm-hmm. It means that we knew, I guess we knew odds that we didn't project properly and act on those. I remember um, when I read it, I did. I mean, I was excited by the article and I even had a friend who was like really into the cryptocurrencies and was trying to push me to get into them as well. And I just, I, I looked into how big of a pain in the ass it was to do. And I was like, eh, it probably won't pay out. And I didn't do it. And now I regret it, you know? Like I was looking into getting on one on Reddit. It was a Litecoin clone that someone made a couple weeks ago called Garlic Coin. Okay. Garlic Coin. And for like Garlic Coin, there's no break. So it's one C. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, Garlic Coin is built on an understandable and familiar stack that Litecoin is built off of. And um, they were going to hand out like two free ones to everyone who subscribed to the subreddit and this and that. So I was like, all right, I'll subscribe and I'll follow this a little bit. And it was largely hilariously shitposted memes because everyone's just making the biggest fun of this ever. Um, but they're actually worth something now. I'm not sure how much. <laughs> really? Uh, less than, last I, I saw something that I, I can't even, so that's the thing. As I imagine this is like probably easier than it was getting into Bitcoin eight years or seven years ago. Oh yeah. But I can't even figure out how to buy this shit. So like I, I, I followed a few links and then it's like, all right, cool. Download this thing and then like put in your credit card and stuff. I'm like, that sounds shady as all hell. Oh yeah. I didn't, I didn't download the thing, but like I couldn't even figure out where to like who to give my money to or how to do it. So if all I'm hearing is that like, yeah, go to this weird site and you know, download the software onto your computer and then suddenly you own part of the blockchain. Trust me, that's a thing you're good. And then, you know, when you put in your credit card, that's fine too. Don't worry about it. Like I think there's a lot of good reasons to say no, It'd be really easy for someone to steal my money if I was just going to put my credit card in stuff that I, you know, don't know what I'm doing. You know my project and, for this Saturday? No. I'm going to create Basecoin. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, apparently launching, launching Garlic Coin was harder than they thought it was going to be. So, And they have quite the cult following on Reddit. So heads up, it might be kind of hard. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I saw something about how there must have been a dip. I think it went, went from like 1.5 cents down to, down to 0.5 cents. Okay. Um, but, you know, shit. If it was, you know, 0.001 cents to start or something, then it goes up to five bucks. It's like, yeah, sure, I'll put in $10. Who cares? Mm. But I couldn't even figure out how to do that. And honestly, maybe I should have. Now I'm kicking myself. In fact, fuck it. I'll figure out maybe how to buy garlic coin when I get home. Because <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm, you know, if in 10 years this is the next light coin, they're all worth 130 bucks each, then I've made some money. Can I give you a buck? Get me a buck worth of <laughs> garlic coin. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll throw it in for free. I'm not going <laughs> to. Okay. Hold on to your, your paper. If you want to Venmo me a dollar or whatever. Um, but. Uh, yeah, we'll see how this works out. I don't really, like I said, I'm not even sure how to get my hands on it, but I think that might've been the objection that people had back then. So, um, and like I knew people too, who bought get or who mined and bought Bitcoin back in the day and then sold when it was a few hundred bucks. So like, I guess they could have said maybe my returns will keep going, but like in a lot of ways, that's like, you know, I'll keep doubling down on green on the roulette wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than take my 500% return and leave, I'm going to stick around for more. Like that sounds insane too. Right. And I sincerely wonder whether or not, like if there was this big epidemic of a lot of rationalists investing in Bitcoin and then they all bought and then it crashed. Um, if they'd be like, you guys should have sold when it was high. Why did you guys keep gambling or yeah. why did everyone buy into this thing? This is an obvious mistake. Cause it did crash quite a few times. I mean, there was a number of times where people were like, God, I wish I had sold when it was at $40. Right. Because now it's down to whatever it was down to. So I I wonder, 
this does seem autopsy is a good word for it yeah. because now we're, we're analyzing the situation that happened and seeing how do we get here and how can we appraise it. But the situation could have gone differently. And I wonder if we had all bought this and it blew up in, or if we all bought this and it withered and died, then he'd be like, how could you guys have all been so stupid? This only had a 1% chance of working, right? Mm-hmm. Well, but you shouldn't feel that bad about it because you knew it only had a 1% chance of working, right? I don't know. But how bad is he saying we should feel knowing that it only had a 1% chance of working now, right? Not too bad. He said, okay, so the, I love this this paragraph, which I just want to read verbatim. He says, suppose God had decided out of some sympathy for our project to make winning as easy as possible for rationalists. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> he might have created the biggest investment opportunity of the century, made it visible only to libertarian programmers willing to dabble in crazy ideas. And then he might have made sure that all of the earliest adopters were less wrong regulars just to make things extra obvious. <laughs> but but he said uh, he said I think basically I think we did mediocre. We got to see. So in his that, opinion, that's hilarious. Yeah, but I can still seeing that going the other way. You know, yeah. suppose the devil set us up and they wanted to trick us to some stupid Ponzi scheme and then all blow up in our faces and we're all acting all sad and surprised. Go figure. Yeah. Um, Ellie, Eliezer actually replied directly to it. And he said, he, he disagreed directly with Scott. He said, what thought pattern would have generated the right answer here without generating a lot of wrong answers in other places if you had to execute it without benefit of hindsight? Which, you know, I guess. That's a much more eloquent way of phrasing what I've been trying to articulate this yeah. whole time. Yeah, he says, a bounded rationalist should not expect to win at everything at once. And looking back and thinking you ought to have gotten all of the fruits that look easy in hindsight can lead to dis- distorted thought processes. Or distorted thought patterns. Which I'm like, okay, yeah. We don't want to beat up ourselves too much over it. We also don't want to go out and piss away our, like, you know, take out a mortgage and buy a bunch of garlic coin, right? Yeah. Oh, God, no. Well, so, like, that's my point. But if, or maybe, you know, Scott would have advised taking out a second mortgage. But even, like, you know, spending $1,000, which is not negligible, but is not going to, like, keep us from feeding ourselves. Well, and every afternoon that you spend on it is one afternoon that you aren't getting better at rationality or writing a novel or... But it's also know. a 1% chance that a, you know, a million percent return, right? Yeah. So yeah. losing an afternoon of your life is a lot. I would lose a, I would lose a couple summers for a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> well, for guaranteed hundred thousand. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think by that, by that logic, I'd be willing to lose one half of a day for a one, 1% chance. Right. Right. But I do see that objection. Like, to like, when it was first coming out, like obviously it's like, why am I going to burn a day figuring this weird stuff out and giving some, you know, machine, my credit card number that I have no idea what's happening. Um, I can see that being more of a stopper, but like, you know, if your only thing is like, oh, I'm busy and an afternoon is important. Like, yeah, I like walking around too, but I also like making money. So yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, what was the rest of Eliezer's reply? That, that was basically it. Um, did, did Scott reply to that? Because I'm curious too what general thought process could lead to like making calls like that. Not that I saw, but I don't have infinite afternoons, so I don't I don't keep up on everything all the time. If I had if I had infinite afternoons, I'd be a much happier person. Oh god, yeah. That's I think one of the reasons, you know, just as long as it's, you know as long as I'm gonna ramble. I you know, like how Harry wanted to marry his time turner and method rationality. I felt mm-hmm. exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. Like that is just the idea that like, you know what, I'm going to burn, I'm going to go take an hour and just like, you can just go do that whenever you want a few times a day. Yeah. I would, I would seriously sacrifice like 10 years off my lifespan to have that power for the rest of my life. If I say, if I knew I was going to live to be a hundred, okay. I'd give up 10 of those years in a heartbeat if I knew that I could do that. Right. Yeah. I might give up 20. That's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm not, 
I say now I'm not as willing to give up an afternoon because I have this backlist of reading that I got to do to stay current and also just because I enjoy it, right? I'm also curious how you found all these things. Like what, maybe this is actually a good time to pitch this. Like what is your, like, first of all, when do you read all these things? And second of all, <laughs> do you have a, do you have like a uh, RSS feed that emails you every new post and all of these? Do you go to these websites once a day or every couple days or? No, I, so there's some that I hit fairly regularly. Um, uh, Scott Alexander's blog, of course, Late Star Codex, uh, The Ungrumpable Grinch on Twitter, on not Twitter, on Tumblr, and The Unit of Caring on Tumblr are ones that I check pretty regularly because they give me the the burst of dopamine. I just enjoy checking them. And every now and then they'll link to cool things like this. Uh, I, I make an effort of going to Lesser Wrong sometimes and of going to Zvi's blog sometimes and just, I don't know, it's, this is one of those things I enjoy doing in my spare time is just reading around and finding these things i don't so, i don't really have a a method or a a uh rss feed or anything i stumble into things a lot and then now i'm going to start making notes of them so i can bring them up during my weekly pick or bi-weekly pick sounds fun like so for me i do um especially now that i fall into a nice job where i can you know i'm happy because i I'm waving my arms a little bit as I say I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Um, like I enjoy my work even when it's stressful. Like the pro- the class of problems I have now is so much better than they used to be. I have downtime. I have smart peers. I have uh, interesting problems to tackle. And you know even when it's stressful, I still get to figure something out, and that's mm-hmm. like really rewarding. But part of the perk is that I get a lot of time to like you know I read stuff related to work and stuff not related to work. Like mm-hmm. I read Robin Hanson's book last month exclusively on the clock. I think nice. Um, well, maybe minus ten or fifteen percent. But like I was paid to read almost all that book. <laughs> um, I, I would say I do a good 60% of my reading of this stuff at work. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out is I would like, maybe we can put this on the on the web website or maybe every time we link one or we talk about one in the future, we can be just be sure to link to where it came from, like the blog in general, where you found it or something. Because I would like to have a cool you know thing to check every, you know, once every couple of days, just, you know, a list of five places I go look and see. A lot of it comes from Facebook. I just friend people in the rational sphere and every now and then they'll put something on Facebook and whoop, there it is, you know? And I, I, I use the ignore function very liberally on Facebook. I think there's no more than probably 90% of my friends list is muted because I'm just like, okay, you got, you got personal things going on in your life. Unless, unless you're like one of my 12 peers that I really care about, I'm muting you because I, I don't care about your personal life all that much. But this interesting article that someone just posted, ah, that's cool. And so I keep those people that post interesting articles pretty high in my, in my Facebook knows I click through those links a lot. And Smart. so promotes their shit to the top of my feed. Yeah. I think I, I think everyone that I was friends with on Facebook, like what do you call it, unfollowed me? Mm. Cause when, when our girlfriend is in New York getting her masters, we just like sent each other like cute pictures through Facebook mm-hmm. three or four times a day on each other's walls. Oh God. And when you see other people's activity, it's like, why oh, am I seeing another fucking puppy? And you just stop following this. Yeah. Um, so like I'll notice, you know, I don't know, a couple years ago when I would still try and reach out and do stuff, I'd get like two replies, even though I have like 200 friends. I'm like, you know, no one's seeing this. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I would have unfollowed me too. No, no hard feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no one looked to my stuff for, or I guess if anyone is still seeing my stuff, they're not seeing anything, but also I found, uh, I was digging up on here to try and find the post. I was trying to find Eliezer's reply and he just links to a uh, Facebook post that he replied to it. He didn't reply in the comments here. Okay. Um, the only thing in the comments, he says, this is pretty low on the list of opportunities. I'd kick myself for missing a longer reply is here. 
any posts to the Facebook page. Okay. Um, so I, so, I probably got that reply because I just pasted into my text file. I probably got that reply off the Facebook then. That makes sense. But I'm curious. I'm gonna I'm gonna skim it really quick while we're here just to see if uh, Scott replies to it or not because if he does, I'd be interested in, interested in hearing that reply. Oh, here oh, we go. Yeah. Scott Alexander's reply. Um, I'm not arguing people were bad for not being able to figure out Bitcoin was great in 2011. And if anybody had had, excuse me, I suck at reading out loud. Mm. And if anybody had all of this in mind that Bitcoin might go up, but there's no way to make sure that Bitcoins wouldn't be stolen along the way and who would know when to sell and so on, I can't criticize them. Basically the stuff that we were saying. Um, My main point is that a lot of people, including me, did specifically decide Bitcoins were a great investment, tell others they're a great investment, confirm with people that they believed the same and then didn't do anything about it. I talked to a couple people who did the correct EV calculation, mined a few bitcoins for a while, and then forgot they were, forgot about them because they were difficult and annoying. Um, EV a, being expected value, uh, expected value, I believe. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, I was the same way when I was deciding whether to go into Bitcoin or not. I didn't think, oh, I might get hacked or whatever. I just was like, oh, this is kind of a pain in the butt. Well, that's fair. One of our friends, uh, Thomas Elliott, who was on the podcast, replied to Scott's reply there. And so did Eliezer, who said, well, all I can say is that I didn't reason that way. Maybe I'm not the right person to ask, but I do have a general heuristic that says, I could have made this great financial investment and outperformed the market. Woe is me. Usually is loser is losery thinking. Okay. Is uh, that Thomas's reply? No, that's, that's Eliezer's. Oh, okay. Uh, Thomas's was, I think I made this mistake, and I think it was a genuine mistake, and I think the reasoning in the OP as to why it wasn't is specious and excuse-making. Okay. So... So a lot of lot of disagreement in both directions on this particular topic. I did think it was really interesting, though. It is interesting. And we are here to bring you the rationalist news. <laughs> yes, today we are. Uh, feedback. Yes, feedback. So before we do feedback, let me quickly thank our, um, think, thank, um, our supporter for the week. This week's supporter is... Hold on, where was it? Ah, here's the list. Matt Freeman! In fact, Matt Freeman? Is that our Matt Freeman? I can only assume it's our Matt Freeman. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Matt Freeman. If you are our Matt Freeman, you rock. Uh, If you're not our Matt Freeman, you actually also rock because you are helping support the podcast. So yeah, whichever Matt Freeman you are, you're cool. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's it's the one that's been on the show. Okay. Cool. I'm only, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, we can ask him. Yeah, that's fair. Awesome. But yes, uh, and thank you to all our supporters, of course. But in this week specifically, thank you, Matt Freeman. We couldn't do this thing without you. And I mean, I guess technically we could, but we wouldn't want to. Agreed. How, how I want to rephrase that now. That sounded kind of bitchy, didn't it? That we wouldn't want to do it without you. Uh, you make, you, all right. Uh, your money isn't just fuel for the for the for the servers it also fuels our hearts now yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to put it it's the dumbest way to put it i, I like it <laughs> if this stays in my caveat about this being the dumbest way to put it, it has to stay in too okay uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of conversation on the reddit about the marriage episode yes let's let's read a little bit about that so shelly doesn't drink i wonder if that's a shelly that i know i it also is. i also know the shelly that that doesn't drink yeah um Legal marriage in the U.S. does grant a lot of benefits, sometimes in ways that play into systemic or institutional singleism, discrimination against single people. For instance, as you mentioned, the fact that spouses can't be required to testify against each other. 
There's some other legal benefits, uh, bullet pointing through. Because this is what I was asking about at the end. I was like, why do people want to get married? Mm-hmm. Like, if all this does is ruin, you know, put you up in a situation to shoot yourself in the foot, then why? Why was this like? Why weren't gay people lucky that they weren't that there wasn't pressure for them to get married because they couldn't? Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys were like, kind of shruggy. I, I'm I'm sad. I'm sad we didn't address that more. There was a commenter that actually asked us the same thing. So we should we should get to that too. We will. But I'm going to yeah. list off some of the things that Shelley pointed out here. So. Yeah. Um, various immigration benefits. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to sue for wrongful death of a deceased spouse. Can you not sue for the wrongful death of a friend? Probably not. I well, mean, I, I know I have, you I have can a related for example like, that I'm pretty sure at least you can for family members, yeah, but I guess spousing makes somebody a family member. Right. Um, hmm. So let's see. Um, that's interesting. That you can't sue for the wrongful death of a friend. If that's true, then fuck that. And thanks for pointing that out. Mm-hmm. Um, inheriting the social security and veteran survivor benefits of a deceased spouse. Can you not sign that? I'm assuming that she's done all her homework on these. So I'm going to just assume that they're all true. Yeah, yeah. But I know that like at my work, I guess it's not social security, but it's, um, and it's not veterans life. So it's neither of these, but like my life insurance policy, I can give to, give to whoever. Yes, you can. But um, I think social security is uh, specifically, and maybe veterans too, is specifically for spouses. Then which is, that's the thing. Yeah. Workers comp, um, ability to roll a deceased person's 401k funds into an original retirement account without paying income tax. And in many States inheritance, inheritance taxes on those funds. Um, and I mean, all these make sense if you assume that the marriage is one person. So mm-hmm. I guess the, the positive effects of that are these things. So I'm going to keep that in mind with the rest of these going forward. Um, spousal inheritance in general for people who haven't made a will, lower likelihood of make will. Make a will. <laughs> yeah, make a will. I need to do that, by yeah. the way. Um, let's see, I sort of just hope whoever is in charge of my stuff will be nice to it. I guess that's, not, <laughs> that's the latest will ever. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's some default things. It goes to next of kin. Which I don't know who my next of kin is. Uh, whoever's most closely related to you by blood that's still alive. I think my it might be your brother. parents. Oh, <laughs> you have a twin brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it takes that into account, but I believe it'll go to your parents. Then if I you don't have any nice children. It, but and yeah, if your enough. parents are gone, then siblings and so forth. All right, I'll learn to make a will and I'll get around to it. Got to stare death in the face to do this. Not looking forward to that. Can um, I just say, wills, sometimes not the greatest thing. Uh, well, not as ironclad as some people would like there is um this just happened at my work like two weeks ago uh there's an older gentleman who recently died who had a lot of money and during the last four years of his life he married a wonderful young woman who Uh, is less than half his age and sure it was true love yeah well you know what i ain't judging point is he was happy Uh, and and he you know he married her and he signed over a lot of stuff to her and now the rest of his family specifically his siblings uh and his children from his previous marriage are all really pissed and are taking it to court because they're like look this lady only knew him for a few years she comes in swoops in gets everything given to her in the will like almost nothing at all left for anyone else even though she wasn't around helping him when he was sick like in his 60s he had something or whatever and uh and uh, she has a habit of doing this. The last person that she married was also an old man with too much money who died, and she got the same thing. Black Widow. Yeah, right. All right. Yeah, so... Uh, Which, I mean, if that's a line of work you can get into. Right. You know. I mean, and... and like, I say tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> no one take that seriously. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, I, I, I think of it from... What if I was the old man? Once you're, like, decrepit and in your 80s and divorced, like, not that many hot people are going to be into you 
Like, oh, I thought Black Widow specifically married and then killed their partners. Well, yes, they do. So, yeah, that's, that's what I was yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about. Yeah. I, I don't think she actually murdered anyone. There was no foul play involved. He was just an old dude at the well, end of his life. how do you prove foul play if he just died of old age? You know, it looks like old age, suffocation, just saying. <laughs> I guess it could have been, but... <laughs> Um, but no, there is so, I mean, I would want to be able to make the trade with someone. Hey, look, I have a lot of money. I know I'm not physically attractive anymore, but you make me happy. I I have Viagra. Will you stick around with me for a few years? And I will give you all the shit after I die. Oh, that's rough. I wonder and what I the would, going rate is compared to like your entire life savings versus just like, you know, five hours a week with a prostitute or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, but there's a difference because five hours a week with the prostitute mm, is not doesn't come with much of an emotional relationship to it having you know well i, I won't get into that but uh so yeah. uh the the e, e, being having someone that you can share your life with and who will like you know live in your house and help clean it up and take care of you and share all sorts of experiences with you is something that's true and like if i had the money to make that sort of a deal i might be willing to make that sort of a deal with someone. And I would be really upset to learn afterwards that my parents were contesting the will in court. And that's what they're doing right now. They're contesting it in court because again, it's the law. Everything is negotiable. So uh, even getting married and having a will isn't 100%. It, it, it kind of sucks. That's interesting. And I will say, like having seen this on the other side, that's pretty detestable to watch people argue over like some, you know, a dead family member's stuff and money. Yeah. Like um, when my great grandpa died, um, actually shortly before, like the summer before he died, um, his son who I had never met, um, I met him first at grandpa's or I guess grandma's funeral. Um, but when he was out there for grandma's funeral, he also had grandpa who was in his nineties and not a hundred percent with everything, but he was still like, he was still there. He like no trouble remembering who we were or anything. Um, but you know, his son wanted to see inside like his cool safe where he had all these antique coins and then he emptied it. Oh and, shit. Uh, you know, because it's his son, he, you know, felt you know, like he couldn't really do anything about it and that sort of thing. And yeah. um, so this would be my dad's biological dad, but my dad was adopted when he was two. And I don't know when he first met his biological dad, but I didn't meet him until I was in my 20s, I guess. Um, or I guess late teens. I forget when grandma died. Um, but like, I never met Tom's kid. Excuse me, well, dropping names, who cares? Um, we'll call him Tom. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, I've never met his kids, and yet my dad's kids, me, we went out to see my grandparents every summer. Like, you know, and they're great. We loved them. And, like, you know, his biological dad, his kids couldn't give less of a shit. And they're one they're one step closer to, to the my great-grandparents than I am. Yeah. And, like, they didn't come out for the funeral. Oh. And, like, you know, his fourth wife took grandma's wedding ring out of her purse when we after she was buried. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah, well you know, grandpa said I could have this and, you know, it's like, well, no, he didn't. That's why he wants it back. Like, you know, but like anyway, so that level of weird, petty stealing from dead people shit is disgusting. Mm. Um, that's just my thought on that. When You might notice that sometimes we record these shows at night and the later it goes, the weirder it gets. So <laughs> buckle up. We're not done yet. Exactly. So. Although to be fair to Shelly, she did say lower likelihood of will being contested. Yeah, no, not well, that, you know, it wouldn't be. It's well thought out. I want to keep going. Greater chance of being able to get to health insurance coverage from a spouse's policy. True. And you did talk. Oh, no, that was off the air. I want to throw Enyosh some props. Um, Naveen asked him after we finished recording, is there any circumstance under which you would still marry somebody, given how, what your position is now? And you, I think, very thoughtfully, and you won't, maybe you won't admit how thoughtful and well-reasoned <laughs> it was, you would said, yes, I've thought about this. And if somebody that I cared about was going, you know, needed medical treatment and couldn't afford it. I, I might marry them. I would likely marry them or something, whatever you said to give them my health insurance so that they won't die 
or to radically improve their life, which showed me that you'd actually thought about like all the angles and didn't just like say, I'm against it. What's all my ammunition for it? You thought about the various perspectives and I thought that was really cool. Mm. Um, so I uh, wanted to give you props that you did anticipate that just not on the air. Um, being able to make medical decisions for our spouse without needing a medical power of attorney document. I guess that's true, but are medical power of attorneys documents that hard to get? I, I don't, don't know, know a lot about I've this. I've never looked into it. Um, but yeah, that's true. Um, being able to become a guardian for a spouse who needs guardianship without needing the declaration of guardian support. So I think like these were the things that I was talking about you could get other paperwork for. Yeah. Um, eligibility, el- eligibility for step-parent adoptions in many states. Um, being legally granted preference over legally unmarried people for adoptions in some states. So... Um, Oh, sorry. She goes right on to say, even though there are other legal documents that can grant certain rights slash privileges that are typically bundled into legal marriage, the authorities often ignore these documents. Yeah, that is that is unfortunate and some horrible bullshit. I remember back before gay marriage was legal, there were people that would get some of these documents for their uh, for their gay partners. And sometimes the hospitals would just ignore them. They'd be like, I don't care that you have medical power of attorney. We don't approve of gayness in this state. And therefore, you can't go see the the person that you are legally allowed to see. If they and were I mean, legally what are they married, going to do? Push over the orderly and muscle your way into the room? That's not going to make anything better. Would a legal marriage put, stop some bigoted orderly anyway? No, probably like just, not. Just saying in that particular case, like yeah. agreed, it did. You know, might have made it harder. And but like, the but fact it that does. People, like for some reason, like the, there are a lot of people, especially the bigoted old school people, ones that has the word marriage, are like, well, fine. I guess now that it's officially okay with God and the and the government or some shit. I don't think that they think it's okay with God if they're old bigots, but they think, yeah, it's okay with the government apparently and the government's forsaken their Lord or whatever. I don't know how these, I'm too tired to think of in these people's shoes. Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time in the hospital, luckily, yet, fingers crossed. Um, and, you know, I would be pissed, to, you know, fuck it. Like, there's if, just if there's some, a certain if, social weight that comes from that particular piece of paper that yeah, doesn't come with a lot of others. I just think it's stupid. Like if my friends want to come visit and I'm unconscious, come gawk at me. I don't care mm-hmm. if I'm awake and you know, I say I wanted to see them. It's like, well, you can't cause you're not married. I would, I would, I don't know, throw my colostomy bag at whoever said that, like <laughs> yeah. you know, or my bed pen or whatever. Like, fuck that. That's insane. Yeah. Although you could probably be hit with an assault charge for doing that. I would find some form of revenge to do for that. I don't know. I don't um, think they would actually hit you with an assault charge. Oh man, I would kind of hope they would. I don't know really? people who work in hospitals. If somebody threw literally shit at them, I hear that happens a lot in hospitals. Oh man, yeah. And they get only paid like eleven seventy five an hour, yeah. Um, which isn't enough to like pay for, I guess, whatever medical treatments you might need to look and like, am I gonna get sick now? <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Um, in general, I think a solution in which government had less interest in knowing which adults are each other's family members would be better, and certainly less institutional singleism would be better. But as things are now, on an, indiv- and on an individual basis, there are many benefits for whom the practical ben- or excuse me, there are many people for whom the practical benefits of legal marriage in the U.S. currently outweigh the risks. Um, that's a well-reasoned position, kind of like your thing about net neutrality. Like, hey, if there are no regulations and no bullshit going on here, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Since there's tons of bullshit, then you know this is the way to play the game. Yeah. So, I. But like, so, I guess if I'm not a veteran, if I'm not, if I don't have social security. Like a lot of these don't apply to me right now, right? Yeah. Um, and there, there are, there's an interesting other aspect to this where if, 
So we said that a lot of the benefits of marriage can be replaced by uh, things like these these wills and medical power of attorney, that sort of stuff. And I don't, I think this was a different comment. I'm not sure it was in Shelley's comment, but someone else pointed out that, yes, but you can get all those cheaper and easier with a marriage contract. Just sign that uh, for, you know, 10 minutes, pay your $50 fee or whatever it is. And you got all that instead of having to hire a lawyer. I think the interesting thing, behind this is that there is a very small subset of people that marriage is actually beneficial for with these benefits that a lot of people mention. If you are rich enough that you need inheritance, that you're worried about inheritance stuff, you can probably afford a lawyer to get an actual well-written will out. Like the the people... The people who are so poor, they just need to run down and get a marriage for $15, don't really have anything that gets transferred over, right? I mean, maybe I, like a I'm junker you. car. If you have an estate that's worth your family bickering about, you have enough money to hire a lawyer. Yeah. And like, not even, it's not going to be, you know, a $3,000 venture, probably, right? You're going to bring somebody on for, you know, people do wills for not the like, you know, $400 an hour lawyer rate, right? The more interesting aspect to me more recently has been that there are a lot of benefits to not being married as well uh, that the government provides. I remember reading, uh, do you guys, do you read SMBC comics? Yes, big fan. God, love SMBC comics. It is like, in my opinion, the rationalist comic out there. Zachary Winger Smith has been on Rationally Speaking twice. Fucking fantastic. That's on the Let's Wrong Slack. Cool. Let's Wrong Slack channel. Okay. Yeah, so yes, it is definitely the rationalist webcomic. Um, XMBC, or uh, XKCD though, while not rationalist is, it's it's like a worm version of, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's very close, read by a lot of the same people. Yeah. I was off mic for a second. I mentioned XKCD as another uh, awesome webcomic. And that it is like the worm Yes. Yes. If if it's not quite rationalist fic, it's uh, it's, very it's damn close. good. Yeah. yeah. All right. But uh, yeah, there was um, when the the healthcare overhaul was happening with uh, Trump a few months ago. Uh, Zach Weiner, yeah, posted about it and said that a lot of people who are, especially people who are creative, self employed people, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, are really freaking out. Like, what can we do about this? And he said that he was in a meeting where some people brought uh, brought up jokingly that they had looked into getting divorced for the benefits, and um, that. <laughs> That stuck out to me because I know a couple who has gotten divorced for the tax benefits uh, because like literally went through with it because there are there are a lot of benefits the government does give to people who are in the lower income bracket if they are single and have children uh, and by getting divorced all of a sudden the, the the female in the relationship was now a single mother and she and her children could get on much medical, better medical coverage. They're uh, eligible for all sorts of government programs, which more than made up for what few benefits they got from um, the tax break for, for being married. And so if you're on the extreme low end of the spectrum, marriage is more costly for you. You get more benefits out of not being married. If you're on the extreme high end, marriage is too costly for you because you can afford to to protect yourself. But yeah, no, so uh, there's there's this very small slice if you're kind of in the middle where you don't have a lot of assets, but you have some and you don't have a lot of spare cash for lawyers, but you do have a little bit of money. And if you are of the traditional uh, 
50s housewife and um, and husband model of family where the tax benefits actually help you, then yeah, there's a there's a slice of the American electorate out there who is probably gets more benefits uh, out of marriage than most of the people that I know, I guess. Um, but there's a lot of people to who marriage just doesn't have all these benefits. Like who, who cares about being able to, to not have to pay income tax on inheritance of, of almost nothing, you know? Yeah. It's a whole weird thing. Like, I think I said everything I've, I can think on it. Anyway. I mean, th- those are interesting. Those are interesting points to raise. And, you know, I was talking with another friend about this too. And I, I, just think, I think the benefits are overhyped, I guess is what I'm saying. And like a lot of those benefits don't apply to us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, cause we're not soldiers, we're not vets, we're not uh, on social security. So like, you know, we, those things, like those particular ones don't apply to us, but they do apply to some people. And that's an important caveat. I feel like the whole thing is kind of just like, you know, and this is something that you expressed a lot, but I'm seeing more and more of, it's like, why is there just so much fuckery in this? Mm-hmm. Like, why is it 50 things and why does nobody know about all of them? And it's really, it shouldn't be this complicated. Uh, um, But you know, the, the other thing too, well, I don't know how you can even go about that. So we won't. So let's go on to the next feedback thing here. Okay. Uh, Unless you have anything more to say on to Shelley's. No. Uh, Zeke Ron says, I think you guys had some misconceptions accord about what common law marriage is. According to Colorado law, you cannot accidentally be common law married. Oh, neither Steven nor Inyash are going to have to go through a common law divorce. If they split up with an antagonistic partner, because I know neither of them are signaling as if they are actually married. Um, so one thing with that is like I said, my leasing office thinks I'm married yeah. and I don't correct them, but we're not running around introducing each other as husband and wife. Um, but you're saying check lower than that or something. Yeah. I think we basically covered that in the, the episode where we can skim, we can tell me whichever ones we want to read or whatever. I don't mean to just go through all of them. There are a lot of comments on this one. Sure. Well, which is a friendly reminder that there's lots of fun conversation to be had at the Bayesian conspiracy subreddit. If, uh, if you know, two hours of this in your ears every two weeks isn't enough, you can get online and argue with strangers at the subreddit. So <laughs> by all means, strongly invited. Uh, the one that I, I wanted to, that I think we should respond to, uh, because it was a good point, was Zikaron said, I think Stephen had the best argument in the first five minutes. Did gays fight for the right to get married based on hospital visitation rights and other benefits? Yes. Therefore, people find value in the legal contract known as marriage. I feel like this was ignored for the rest of the conversation. I think he steelmanned my argument. I was asking if that was a question, and... I think I even flippantly said something along the lines of like people raised this point every time it came up, like it was happening to everybody once a month. And, uh, I was being somewhat dismissive. Like I get like that happens to real people and that's bad and it shouldn't, but like that shouldn't be the reason why you're fighting for marriage because there's a one in 10,000 chance that you won't be able to visit your loved one in, in the hospital. Right. Yeah. Um, or even like, I mean, that's probably not a good number. There's like a one in 10,000 chance your lover will end up in a hospital and then, further the the constraint of you being barred from visiting them or something right yeah. um or I mean, you being barred from visiting them after trying to set up a uh whatever uh legal document that lets you visit so because of that also being barred you're putting a lot of epicycles on this i think that like that's probably a tiny number of people right now granted we don't want to discriminate against anybody and that's fucked up but like 
to to say that we all want this because of hospital visitation, mm-hmm. that seems like a weird flag to get under because that's a very small subsect of people. I wanted to. I feel when I when I read this, I felt a twinge of pain because I thought that was an excellent point, and I had wanted to address it, but I got distracted by something, and it flew out of my mind, and I we never really got to it. Maybe and, I'll disregard the whole thing I just said about not liking the point because it sounds like I was being so gallant. But <laughs> no, 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 no. I, no, I think that was decent. Uh, I think, I mean, the reason, and I, I guess um, I am asserting this rather than having research to back it up, but. The reason that gay people wanted marriage equality was because they want fucking equality. They, um, as long as that right is denied to people by the government, the government is saying you are lesser humans. You do not deserve the same rights as everyone else. And that is a shitty thing for the government to do. And also is that I think that a government should not be allowed to do. I totally agree. They're, yeah. They're not allowed to say to people that you do not count. Your love doesn't count. Your relationship doesn't count. And you are are a lower class of human. And um, that is really what they were fighting for, for the social status to be seen as equal to everyone else, that their love is just as important. Their lives are just as important. And in that case, this meant getting the right to marry, getting the right to fuck up their relationships like all the straight breeders do. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think that was a Homer Simpson quote, like, why don't we let them get married miserable like the rest of us? Um, It was some, some TV show, but... Uh, no, I, um, and, but the way that that has to be fought for in the courts and in, in other in public uh, arenas is that you say we are being denied these benefits that married people get like hospital visitation benefits and adoption benefits. Right. You can't so, point to the social recognition and say we're being denied that. Cause it's like, well, so what? Yeah. But if you're, but if you can point you're to gays, legal, you don't dis- deserve to be, but if you can point to legal discrimination, then then that's where the case is made. Exactly. Okay. So that's, that's the statement and I can totally see that. So they, Really, they say it's for these fringe benefits that very, very few people get to benefit off of. Mm-hmm. But like you said, and you put it much more eloquently than I could have. It's like, no, we're doing this because whether we all love this or not, this, the, the the culture says if you love somebody, you get to marry them. Yeah. And you're by, literally by, by, not, by not letting love. us get married, you're saying that we can't love each other in this in society's eyes. And yeah. that's fucked. So if you have to fight that terrain on like... Uh, quasi-legitimate grounds of like, you know, what if I want to visit my partner in a hospital or have them have my social security? Um, then yeah, fight to win because it's important. Like the victory there was important. Yeah. And while I wish the victory wasn't important because it, like, it seems weird that you need this, you know, 50-page government contract to sh- say that you love somebody, um, since that's the case, it's kind of like, you know, again, the regulation thing, the less there is, you know, whatever. But yeah, since that's the case, you know, fuck it, go nuts, right? Yeah, um, yeah I, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I I think it's a, a symptom of buying into the if you love someone, you get married thing. But, you know, they bought into it, so they were fighting for marriage. And that's fine. You can buy into all sorts of things. I'm Heck, the fact that I disagree doesn't even mean that I'm right. It just means I disagree. Which I'm sure everyone who thinks I'm wrong <laughs> would agree with very strongly. I think that's that's fair. Let me see what else is going on here. Sorry, I was reading. I didn't I didn't hear the last thing you said. That was rude. I was skimming oh, the rest of this post. Fine, it's fine. Not without incident said. Uh, not without incident was the person that we quoted and responded to when they said. I quoted them as saying um, they don't care about the economic impacts of of a net neutrality regulation. 
they just care about their personal experience. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be like the third time now that we're responding to that sort of thing. Oh, man. But yeah, not with that incident said, I wasn't trying to suggest that economic growth was never good for consumers or internet users, just that there isn't an obvious correlation between any given period of gro- growth or contraction and the experience of people on the internet. Cowan was approaching things from a macroeconomic perspective first, and I don't agree that that's what's important in this case. I was like, okay, I should at least read that and let him have his say because I didn't want to misrepresent what he was saying. Uh, also, um, whoops, sorry, not without an incident said in terms uh, on, on the marriage side of things. Maybe this is self-evident to everyone else, but I wish there had been some discussion about why community property is bad from an ethics standpoint. Everyone, even Naveen, seemed to agree it would be better to maintain separate finances while still gaining the legal benefits. Just from a personal perspective, I'm happy with community property because it makes life so much easier, and my wife and I were basically living that way well before we were married. If I get divorced, splitting everything 50-50 seems fair, regardless of who earned it. What's more, this seems like the general understanding people have of marriage through personal experience, divorced friends, and pop culture. When Kanye says, when she leave your ass, she go and leave with half, I don't think he was imparting any secret wisdom. <laughs> Which, Kyle, if right here you could underlay some gold digger beats, he would be so pumped about that. Well, unfortunately, I don't really listen to much in the ways of hip hop. So here's my best effort. A wubba lubba dub dub. Um, Shelly also said, my impression is that most people are aware that losing significant amounts of property and or having to pay alimony are possibilities in most states. And yeah, I mean, I was also aware of that. And when we bought our house together, I, I, okay, I'm about to say I knew I was going to lose it when we got divorced, but that's not the correct thing to say because it's not losing it. Like if you buy a, a car and then you fix it up and sell it at a profit after you've sold it you don't say oh i lost my car you know so we bought this house together we fixed it up we sold it at a profit at, at the divorce and so it's that's not losing it she deserves half that house at half that house is hers and i was totally fine with that it was all the other things afterwards that she found as ways to bite into me and hurt me that I didn't realize the law made possible that really sucked. Like the fact that you almost lost your like townhome uh-huh. that you had before you met. Yes. That to me is insane. Yeah. And I get they all belong to the marriage now, but mm-hmm. like that's that's the kind of shit that how could you possibly fucking known that? That's your stuff. You know, her name couldn't be on any of it, right? Right. Um, and when I, when I married her, we were both pulling an income and mine was a bit more than hers, but you know, it was at the point where the alimony would not have been much of anything. I would have been like, yes, I am happy to give you a few thousand dollars, maybe, you know, even $10,000 to help you on your way as we are splitting apart. Uh, but after, after some period of our being married, she basically, well, she did quit her day job and wasn't drawing any income for the rest of our marriage. And I was supporting her as she was trying other things out. But uh, the point being, after all that, it looked like rather than me loaning her money and helping her invest in her small business, I was supporting her. And this was now the lifestyle she's accustomed to, quote unquote. And I had to keep doing that, which was, I mean, really, people can just say you married the wrong person. You shouldn't have married someone who's that irresponsible and blah, blah, blah or whatever. But 
Well, I, when I got into the marriage, we were making not that different of an you know amount of money, and like, you know, I didn't want to get into this, and we can do this later if you want or never. But like, you know, nobody gets married thinking, all right, this person you know has like a one in two chance of flipping on me, right? Yeah, yeah. You you think it's a distant, if not impossible, like or po- a possibility, I guess. Yeah. Um. You know, it's uh. You wouldn't have done it if you thought it was going to happen, right? So, like, planning for it and saying, you know, well, if, you know, she was making less, whatever, like, that's, nobody nobody thinks about that. Or rather, they do and they dismiss it, not dismiss it, they conclude that it's a very low risk, right? That's why whenever I talk about it, I, I, I couch it in the terms of, like, what if one of us had a stroke or something, you know? Because that's, that's really the likelihood situation where I could see it happening, and that's probably somewhat how you felt. Like, it's, uh, and sorry, this is personal. No, like, no, 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 it's fine. Um, but, yeah, I was talking to a friend about it, and he was, you know, because uh, he called, he was listening to this episode, mm-hmm. and uh, he was, like, where was I on this? I was, like, it was basically just that, you know, like nobody does this if they feel like they're they're really putting themselves at risk. Yeah. You just feel like you're doing something that, that people who love each other do. Yeah. And uh, it's, I'm going to just keep repeating myself. I also do that when I'm tired. So I, I in, in our meetup earlier this week, uh, someone said, just imagine like if if because the the whole marriage and polyamory thing came up briefly they're like yeah imagine the alimony you'd be paying if you divorced four people at once and i was like oh no from what i know of marriage if i'm married to four people i quit my job and go (laughs) and i'm immediately unemployed so that when we get divorced i collect alimony (laughs) from four people which is sadly what i would literally be incentivized to do if i were to get married again i'd be like well i'm gonna quit my job right now so when sol- this goes south it was a solid rebuttal yeah. <laughs> i was trying to be funny and i think that you made a made a good good counter argument um i wanted to, to read a couple more of these we've got uh shelly doesn't drink saying that naveen's stated reason for wanting legal marriage wanting to cite wanting society to put him and his wife in a pen is pretty awful in my opinion i kind of agree and we talked about that you know this hard to get out of box with nothing in it um i understand that the ability to pre-commit is a game theoretic advantage so if you want to limit your own autonomy go ahead but don't try to get society to limit your autonomy for you that leaves society disturbing others of their autonomy too often in cases where they unlike you didn't want it also, it's coercive, disrespectful, and lacking in integrity to deliberately use the legal financial pressure to make your intimate relationships last longer. I might have read that fast, but it was basically what we talked about, which is fun because it's uh, it it shows the nuance in Shelley's position here because she gave all these reasons pro marriage, but she's saying, "Look, all the reasons I'm for it, that one's shit, and here's why." <laughs> um, I also didn't like that reason, and that was uh, that was Kyle's reason that we talked about in the feedback of the last episode. Yeah. Um, so it's. Uh, Interesting. Sorry. I'm still reading. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to quickly put in this one from the crash Thor uh, said this one. This one actually hurt me. Uh, the, uh, the crash source says once again, you didn't taboo the term you were arguing about then proceeded to use the majority of the par- podcast to argue past each other by assuming different definitions. And yeah, I when when I read it, I was like, fuck we did and i mean it's okay if you do it once like we did with the spirituality episode because you can you can fuck up once right and it's whatever it's a fuck up but this was two times in close succession and i we really i personally should have 
paid attention and known better. And so I, I'm just, I, I apologize to our listeners. I should have done better. It was a learning experience. I feel like it was still fun to listen to. But yeah, I mean, like, and we did articulate down the road because I didn't know what Naveen's position was before we started talking. Mm. And then it became clear that he, was de- that he was defending something that you clearly weren't arguing against. Mm. Um, or rather, he was defending something that you, let me, let me rephrase that. We were he, talking past each other. Well, he, you guys agreed on like everything. Um, but I feel like he knew that going in and, and neither of us did. And I think it was like, cause he knew your position and presumably he knew his, um, whereas you didn't really know his, all you knew that he was going to come is defend marriage, but he was defending in his words, this uninstantiated class that never is actualized in, in the real world of marriage. And that's not really what we were talking about. Like it was what he was talking about, but yeah, taboo. We'll work on it. Yeah. That's a good life lesson. Yeah. I'm not gonna beat myself up over it. Like, what can we do? Um, but other than try and get better, which we will. Yeah. So, all right. I personally will flagellate myself quite a bit. <laughs> um, let's I have, see. I have one last one. So go ahead and do whatever you would like before I get to that one. Um, I got it. I'm skimming. You go right ahead. Okay. Uh, the last one is one that I absolutely loved and agreed with so hard that I almost broke my monitor. Uh, basically boss says my mother was a housewife who was divorced a few years ago after approximately 23 years of marriage. Since then she has had to find a new place to live, get back into the job market and frantically try to put together money for her retirement. Things have mostly worked out for her because my mother is capable and lucky before marrying my father. She was a government contract negotiator work that hasn't changed much and has a decent pension plan. But most people in her place have a pretty hard time of it after 20 plus years out of the workforce. The terms of the marriage con- the terms of the marriage is a contract designed to remove risk barriers to one income households on the assumption that marriage is for having children and raising a child is a full-time job. Preciousness of childbearing years aside, spending 20 years out of the workforce to raise a child is going to seriously dent your professional skills and income growth. And yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. Um I, we, we talked about that. We acknowledge that. I think mm-hmm. we maybe didn't give it a fair enough shake, and it hits home with this with this person closely. Yeah, but um, you know that's that's not the context that you were in, for example. Right. Um, that's not the context that many people are in. Uh, although, like you know, um, fuck it. I know people who have who are in marriages that like it'd be great if they weren't in, but they've been married since they were thirty. They're now fifty five, and it's like, well, what can I do? I haven't, you know maybe I have a job, but it's not very marketable and many of them don't have jobs or they didn't have opportunities to get jobs that would be sustaining, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you could do a $12 an hour temp job or something, but that's not going to let you get a place to live in the town that you've lived in for the last 30 years. So, yeah. um, it definitely, like, it's just this whole weird fucky thing, but I don't really, I guess I don't see a way around that one. I don't know if it's, no, I, I mean, I think that that is a very, okay. So two things, the first being that, uh, if people are getting married for this reason, I think it should be acknowledged up front and that people should say, I am, <laughs> I consider marriage almost buying another person. Like I am going to be buying your services for the rest of your life. I know that you are losing basically the opportunity to have a real career due to uh, the 20 plus years you're going to sink into this. So uh, you get part of my retirement fund. You get part of my pension. You get to own half of this house. 
And that is what I am giving you in return for raising my children and making this house a wonderful place for me and the kids to live and all the other things that a wife does. And I mean, it'd be better, I think, if they could literally split the income into two different accounts and have two different pensions or whatever so that it's easier to split up later if they want to. Uh, and the house would just have to be sold because, you know, it's it's only one house. You can't split it in two. Uh, but if they want to do it the way that it's currently done, sure, that's fine, too. But uh, as as um, sorry, what was the name again? As basically boss says just a little bit later on, um, I can't agree that marriage is obsolete, which implies inferior to newer new inferior to newer alternatives, because for long term monogamous relationships with a full time parent one full-time parent and one, you know, income earner, it's actually a pretty damn good solution. And uh, I agree with him. But the reason I say marriage is obsolete is because that basically never happens anymore. I mean, probably there's some places in the U.S. where it does. But going forward, it's happening less and less. Exactly. Like now that that women aren't barred from the workforce. Yeah. And there's... Far more relationships are both parents working. Uh, A lot of people choose not to have children at all. Uh... But when they do, it's it's usually both parents working, hiring some outside help to watch the kids. It's things are much more equal nowadays, and it just doesn't apply. But most people aren't monogamous and no longer have to keep up the pretense that they are while getting, you know, having an affair or something on the side. They're just I, I, maybe I shouldn't say most, but a lot more people are more honest about these sorts of things. And it just doesn't apply to most relationships that I see nowadays that there are some people that it probably still works for, but for the majority of people that I'm assuming are listening to the podcast, this is sort of an obsolete institution. I, I think I agree. And I think, uh, basically, uh, basically boss agrees. Um, well, to some extent, yeah. they say it would be nice to have a different contract backed institution practice as a de- as a default people could do to demonstrate loving, but not necessarily permanent commitment. So like, you know, the yeah. social recognition without the the legal baggage. Yeah. They, um, they say something like hand fasting for maybe five years. I'm not sure what hand fasting is. Uh, hand fasting. I, you know, I don't know where it comes from, but it was a thing where like you hold your two hands together and you oh, tie like a thing. I around have a them. friend who got married that way. I saw his pictures okay. on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, my God, like, I just so want that to be the default, like showing loving and through a commitment without all this other bullshit that comes from the old style, one income, husband goes to work, earns money, wife stays home and watches the kids, which just to me anyway is distasteful on per grounds of personal autonomy. But I understand some people do want that and like that. So I'm not going to. That was my childhood until I was in my teens. Okay. Um, and you know, it was largely like my dad had, you know, trade experience and had a, had a, a career at the time. And my mom didn't. Well, I think she, she had a job, mm-hmm. um, but like it just worked out to be where, and if you crunch the numbers too, like the wife in the, you know, since it's typically the wife who stays home, it's not always, but being uh, from my general, from my personal experience, mm-hmm. um, my mom wasn't making enough at the time to make it worthwhile for her to keep that job and hire somebody to, to take care of us. Mm-hmm. Um so, like, I think it, it averages out to be something north of 20 something plus thousand dollars a year to hire, you know, full-time care for your kids. Yeah. Um, and it, I guess that's in today's money, not in 1990, early 90s, whatever. But um, it, whatever it was, it, it made economic sense for her to do that, too. Not also because that's what she wanted, but it just happened to pan out that way. Um, 
but yeah, like, you know, it's, it's 2018, man. Things are a little different, (laughs) uh, is my tongue in cheek conclusion to that for now. So yeah, basically boss says the real problem then isn't that marriage itself is bad. It's that widespread ignorance plus the pressure of it's what you do when you're in love pushes people into making a decision that isn't right for them. And yeah, that's, that's absolutely where I stand. And I love everything they said. I fully agree. I think that's a good note to, to wrap up on. Okay. I think. Alrighty. I think we might be at time too, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All okay. Right. So uh, thank you, Kyle, again for being awesome. Yep. Kyle, our sound engineer, makes this show less painful. You still have to listen to the words, but at least they, they don't sound so bad coming in. So <laughs> right. uh, I'm kidding. I like doing this. I hope people like listening to it. I was reading. That's why I mentioned the iTunes thing at the beginning. I was, found them on when I was reading... Uh, once again, Matt Freeman's uh, We Got Worm podcast. I was rating it on the podcast store on the iOS. Nice. And it was uh, easy to do, so I looked at ours. And there's some nice, thoughtful things there. And honestly, the fact that people listen to this and enjoy this make me really happy. Like, I, I did this when it was just going to be like, you know, three people hanging out, chatting, but not doing it over coffee. Mm-hmm. And if it made 10 people happy, that'd be cool. But, um, you know, it people listen i don't know it gives me the warm fuzzies mm-hmm. so i would be i do this for the fun of it and it, there's also that so although now they're probably regretting it because i sound like an inarticulate loon so we better we better <laughs> get getting all sappy on everyone <laughs> <laughs> all right no i agree with you cool all right thanks all thanks bye